I think that there's a, a certain implied metaphysics that we all do. We all do metaphysics all the time. We, we all sort of create these worldviews for ourselves and why not make them, but they're usually tacit and they're usually like, you know, often based on just sort of like, almost like a lazy acceptance of what some authority figure has told you, right? And so for a lot of people, that, that worldview can be extremely debilitating, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, right? It creates that sort of nihilistic sense that why, you know, you know, if everything's dead, if everything's just sort of like, you know, uh, mathematically predictable, determined material um, particles bouncing off each other, you know, and there's no real meaning, there's no depth, there's no purpose to anything. That's a real, that's a world of, of anxiety and depression and fear. Welcome to the Sacred Speaks podcast, if you're new, and uh, welcome back if you're returning. My name is John Price, and this is the Sacred Speaks. So as I'm sitting here getting prepared to present this today, I'm thinking about um, what a glorious experience this is, because you know, listening, being in a conversation, and having the opportunity to listen to it are two very different things and complementary. And uh, the following conversation was fun and interesting and engaging and enlightening. And it was, you know, all of those things and in a different way um, also in listening back to it and preparing it to present to you today. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you for listening. And thank you for participating. A couple of notes. Uh, if you're interested, check out the website, thesacredspeaks.com. You can also follow the project on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I want to read through to, oh yeah, <laughs> the music. All the music today is from Modern Nations. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And... Now I'll move on to today's participant. 
So this is Dr. William Bernard, and uh, I'm speaking with him today. Dr. Bernard has a BA from Antioch University, an MA from Temple University, and a PhD from University of Chicago. He's a professor of religious studies as well as a university distinguished teaching professor. His primary areas of research are the comparative philosophy of mysticism, religion, and the social sciences, contemporary spirituality, religion and healing, and consciousness studies. Professor Bernard is currently researching the Santa Daime tradition, a syncretistic, entheogenically based new religious movement that emerged in Brazil in the mid-20th century. He also teaches a variety of courses, Magic, Myth, and Religion, Mysticism East and West, Understanding the Self East and West, Introduction to Primal Religions, Wholeness and Holiness, Religion and Healing Across Cultures, Waking Up the Philosophy of Yoga and the Practice of Meditation, Ways of Being Religious, Living from the Heart, An Exploration of Mystical, Spiritual Ethics, Plants of the Gods, Religion and Psychedelics, and a graduate course seminar in History, Theory, and Method in Religious Studies. He's the author of Living Consciousness, the, Medical, the Metaphysical Vision of Henri Bergson, as well as Exploring Unseen Worlds, William James, and the Philosophy of Mysticism, both, both published by State University of New York Press. And one of those books is in uh, largely the, at least we draw upon that book and the ideas within for our conversation. Uh, Bill sent me a number of uh, his papers, uh, three or four papers, and his book, and um, fascinating stuff. And so we we go through a lot of uh, consciousness and and end up talking about his his study in brief. Uh, we were pretty brief. We talked about his study of entheogens. So I I don't have much today, but I'm I'm excited to introduce you to Bill. And uh, again, this conversation was fun to listen back to. I think, I guess the only thing is I think that initial quote was important to contemplate in that, you know, the idea of metaphysics and how we understand the world. And we all do it whether we're conscious of it or not, and it has such an impact on how we behave, what we value, who we value. And beginning to interrogate what your metaphysical vision is, is a valuable endeavor because then you can not only be conscious of what's living through you, what perspectives and beliefs and um, ideas form your world. You also then can make decisions and choices about how those are serving you or, or not, how they're serving the world that kind of both and, both both self and other. I wish you well. I, uh, I'm honored for you to listen, and, um, and I also just, I'm completely honored to be able to have these conversations. Uh, thanks, Bill, for, uh, for making the time. Yeah, <laughs> okay. We'll leave it there today. And uh, wish you well. Thanks for being here. I'm here with Dr. William Bernard, and uh, we're going to dig into all kinds of things today. 
Um, but what I propose, Bill, is that we we do kind of an overview of consciousness. And in particular, uh-huh. yeah. I'd like to jump into um, a hard problem, easy problem, and yeah, yeah. maybe tend to the easy problem just for a second, because I, I really want to get into the nuts and the bolts of the hard problem. And I think yeah. things will kind of fan out from there. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, I, I, I would, I would, I would love to just be able to talk a little bit about, yeah, like to share Bergson's vision of consciousness would be beautiful, right? I, and 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 yeah, sure, hard problem, easy problem. I, I don't have much to say about the easy problem except for sort of the, the relationship between my, my sort of perspective with both James and Bergson on the relationship between. The physical brain and consciousness, that's right? Which perfect. is, I think, that, even that's a high a level really definition important. is good. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah. and then I figured what we could do is kind of meander into James and Bergson and then go into some of your more recent work with, uh, sure, sure. okay, cool. So, uh, if, if we can kind of swirl around in this world of, I think, first of all, just for anybody listening who doesn't, isn't aware of this, can we just do a high level definition of, uh, hard problem, easy problem? The easy problem is like, okay, what are sort of the, mecha- let's say in the brain, like what are, what are the relationship between this part of the brain and, um, and motor memory, yeah. you know, or what, what's the, what, what, what are some of the dynamics at play and the quality of attention? Mm-hmm. You know, so you get into the specific issues around, that are either psychological or physiological or the, you know, interaction. but like, how does this stuff work, you know, and what part of the brain lights up here under this and that, right? Whereas the hard problem has to do, okay, given our definition of what, of consciousness and, and the matter that, that are sort of a, the rare, I mean, they are of course specialists, they are defined, but for a lot of people, they're just, it's just sort of this taken for granted thing. Like, okay, I've got, it's not quite, Cartesian, but sort of right in our lived experience. There's that sense of, you know, there's conscious experience, and it has a it has has a qualitative different. It's like an interior first person experience rather than a, a third person objective. It's, it's the difference between subjectivity and objectivity, right? And 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 so for me, it's like the the hard problem has to do with like how does that hard, quantitative, spatial, easy to measure, you know, circumscribed in in space, material object, the brain, however complex it is a material object, right? How does that relate with consciousness, right? And the hard, you know, which seems to be made of something very, very different. It doesn't seem to be really measurable. It's got, it's not, something which is so easy to study because it's studying it's like the the awareness that allows anything to happen right mm. that seems like it's a it's a very different qualitative level of experience and really even the notion of experience means that from my perspective i tend to be even more than Bergson. to me it's like everything really is consciousness right and so i mean we're making a big shift there but for, for me it's sort of like I tend to come from more of a really like a tantric worldview, right? That everything is the creative outpouring of this cosmic consciousness that's manifesting in and through each one of our own particular 
entities of our own conscious experience, right? But that so much of who we are is therefore subconscious or transconscious, mm. right? And that on the and, and you know, and this Beric Song is gonna very much talk about this, you know, that where he begins to sort of link into, you know, the, the connection between our personal individual consciousness. I mean, you can even see in his books, he starts, he goes from um, the, his first book, time, you know, Time and Free Will, it's just about like, let's really look at what's happening in, in our own personal individual conscious experience, right? And it's how complex and cool it is and how it, it, our experience of life is like a, this fusion of manyness and oneness at all moments, right? Of, of, of sheer change that nonetheless isn't atomized and, and it's not like particulate, it's, it's continuous, it's, 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 it's a flux of ever, always newness, right? And he's like, and, and he's, so he's really like making us say, listen, 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 look at, look at the beauty and the depths of conscious. And then he goes into matter and memory, which begins to sort of say, well, in time free will, there's still this sort of split between, I was just focusing on consciousness per se, but then well, how does consciousness relate to matter? Especially if we think of matter as being that which is dead, that which is by definition insentient, mm -hmm. right? And that's how most people just sort of assume that, right? And so for Bergson, it's more like there really isn't a problem. There's for him, it's all durée, it's all duration, which is um, the temporal, inherently temporal flux of consciousness. And there's all these multiplicity of consciousnesses, right? you know, bug consciousness, bee consciousness, bat consciousness, right? And there are also different vibratory frequencies of durée, which then later, you know, in creative evolution becomes very much linked. And I think, it's, but not as explicit, it's just more like implicit with the, the Elan Vital, right? That cosmic evolutionary force as for blossoming freely in and as the universe, not as some separate divine architect or watchmaker, right? But actually as the divine thrust by which evolution of the cosmos is taking place, right? And then in the two sources of morality and religion, his final book, right? There's a sense that that Elan Vital becomes very much linked to, you know, um, who we should become as human beings, right? And I mean, his, um, his very last sentence was about, you know, human beings fulfilling the purpose of the universe, which is, which is to make gods. Mm -hmm. you know, the purpose of the universe is to make gods, right? You know, and so that's sort of the arc of Bergson's work, right? And, uh, but it's all sort of linked to that whole notion of consciousness, right? Where it starts really small and personal, but then it becomes like, the entryway into this just deeper and deeper and deeper, like vast, vast depths of, and it's all consciousness, right? And that, but for me, I'm, 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 I tend to be a tantrika who reads Bergson with tremendous wonder and gratitude. What does right? that mean when you say uh, tantric? Well, I'm, I, a lot of my, my initial study was in this, uh, tradition called Kashmir Shaivism, which is a particular sort of um, non-dual philosophical tradition that was um, present for several hundred years in, in Kashmir. And also 
deeply sort of permeated throughout the subcontinent and was a uh, really lots of the royalty and stuff like this. And it was, so it was, it was a whole worldview from a tantric perspective that every moment of existence is an interlaced fusion and mutual expression of Shiva and Shakti of the, um, and Shakti is understood to be the divine creative um, matrix of the cosmos, right? The, the goddess who is birthing herself into innumerable unanticipated forms for the sheer joy of it, right? And Shiva is, is the sheer, unmoving, unchanging, ever-present, you know, presence in and through all that change, that Shakti, right? And so for me, it's like, and, and, and for them explicitly, all of this is the very nature of consciousness. That's, that's the divine itself is consciousness, right? And so Bergson used the God word a little tiny bit, you know, but for him, for, for Tantricas, you know, the, the cosmos is that erotic interplay between God and the goddess who are both themselves and yet different from each other. So I, I guess the, the thing that I'm, I mean, I, I want to start unpacking everything you've just been talking about. My first question is <laughs> how does, cause the reason why the, even, even what you've just said is rather esoteric. Oh yeah. There are, sure, sure. You know, there are words and concepts and ideas that you're talking about that a lot of people just, I mean, you know, it, it's right. laborious to even do the, tending that one would need to do to begin to understand that right so let's 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 tend to that right i'm i have two directions and of course there's door number three which could be wherever you want to go the the first is to begin to unpack some of what you've just said and in particular i'd want to pay attention to this dual structure a lot of the folks i've been talking to in this project We've been talking about duality and how duality really is kind of a, um, a human condition that uh, that shows up in all these various traditions. Yeah. Or uh, maybe we can put this in a narrative form, which is your narrative, and say, help us make sense of how you got to the point that you're able to speak so freely and with such conviction about some of these concepts and ideas. Which one feels well, more pregnant? Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe a bit of both. Because I, I want to clarify one thing: is like, so for tantricas, it's 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 dual, non-dual at the same time, right? And it's it, it's it's a non-duality that, for its own joy and sport, is manifesting as as dual, seeming duality, and it is a duality. There's, I mean, there is a difference between the knower and the known, mm-hmm. right? So for me, that duality is not just a human creation. That duality is an inherent part of the structure of the cosmos. Yeah, I get that. I felt I did, that I, as I, I said I, it, yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not just a cultural artifact, yeah. right? I think it's really like, no, no, that's, that's born down to where, I mean, I'm, I'm postmodern, I'm aware of all sorts of power, different levels of truth and stuff, but I was like, okay, if I'm gonna root my truth in anything, I'd root it there. You know, sort of like, that's the real Cartesian, you know. It's not I think, therefore I am. It's more like, I am conscious, I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, for me, you know. And so, to me, the, the foundational bedrock of 
what I know to be true is conscious experience. I don't know, but I know ironically also though that underneath my conscious experience there are just like levels and levels and levels of what James would say, like almost like you're conscious above yourself. You know, it's sort of like that there are these, I really have a deep sense. And this comes somewhat from my entheogenic experience, but some way before entheogens with just mystical openings, you know, that I would have periodically of just sort of the multi-dimensional nature of who we are, right? And that's the, James and Bergson both work really well with that notion of the subconscious as being also sort of the, is that which is deep, but it's also that which is really high, at least part of the subconscious. There's lots of layers of the subconscious that can be linked with mental illness and all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things. But they're really interested in that part that, like, where does intuition come from? Where does genius come from? Where does, you know, where do we, you know, that level of consciousness, right? And and most of that's un, sort of it's subconscious. We thank God we don't have to, you know, um, we create dreams over there. Where do dreams come from, right? I mean, they just emerge spontaneously, right? All these like, it's whole worlds, right? And so I actually push back on Bergson a little bit because he doesn't explicitly say this. He has almost more like a Freudian sort of reductionistic theory about dreaming, which I find really un-Bergsonian in a certain way, right? And I push back. I say, listen, you know, really to be consistent with yourself, you should have really been, it's the Alain Vital, where these dreams come from, Right. It, it's that effortless creativity of the divine nature, right? That would be shocking. I get it that this is tough to do, but would you define Elan Vital? Yeah, you're right. It's tough because he because Bergson was very clear about the limitations of language to and its tendency to want to chop up that which is fluid, continuous, and alive into into bits. That's the whole notion of analysis, right? So he did a whole ironic, self-aware, intellectual analysis of what it means to analyze something and to, and to use the intellect, right? And so there's a tendency of the intellect to be linked to words to want to sort of split things into parts. And those, you know, so a word says, okay, white. But it's like, white? Well, there's all these, sh- you could, I was a painter for years, house painter, all these shades of white, right? And, and so for Bergson, it's like, there's all that sheer difference but is it well? Is it white or is it green? You know, well, no, it's it's, it's ever changing. You know, it's like well, but I want to measure it, and to measure, it's got to stand still, right? Or it's got to be a particle, or it's got you know, it's got to have a boundary. It's got to, you know, this doesn't. It's not measurable. It's it's not spatial. It's temporal, right? Well, what does that mean, right? You know, and so it's it's a. I don't know. It's okay. Given all that, Elan Vital would be that cosmic force that is sort of propelling the whole cosmos forward through the process of evolution on all levels to that manifest with sheer creative freedom, the cosmos moment to moment, right? And that is, as he begins to talk about in the two sources is also that which the mystics tap into for inspiration, for creativity, for a feeling of enlivenment. So it, it, it is divine for him, even though in, to be 
in creative evolution, he puts some limits on that, sort of like a finite God sort of thing that James does also, actually, which I have real problems with. That's why I was like, no, no, there's no finitude there. You know, so it becomes a type of, which I'm very much linked with, and this is through, even through my work with Esalen and the, um, the, the, the different seminars that I've attended there with, you know, through the um, um, Center for Theory and Research or something. I forget what the title is. I've forgotten already. But, you know, for, we were really like, there's a whole bunch of us and we're like, no, like what's our bedrock metaphysics? And I'm saying, well, really we're evolutionary panentheists, right? So we are people who basically think that the cosmos itself is an expression of the divine nature itself, and also, but there's a moreness to the divine. It's not just the physical cosmos, right? There's a, all these other levels of, of what the divinity is, right? And it's evolving, you know, meaning that, that there's a newness. And so that's what with Bergson, it's always like with, with Elan Vital, it's not going to some predetermined end. It's not like an alpha and omega, which is like Tehar de Chardin sort of took Bergson and made it a little more deterministic, but theologically deterministic almost. And so for Bergson, it's sort of like, no, no, the cosmos is, being, is opening up in, these, in, in a totally free way. I mean, yeah, there are habits. And so the habits are when there's like sort of like a pullback against that creative freedom, right? Um, and so for him, for Bergson, matter itself is is more like the, it's the habits of nature rather than the laws of nature right because there are levels of the cosmos so it's almost like you get with bergson that anything that is sort of dense and habitual it's just like habits itself almost like uh becomes like a a way to structure the physicality of the cosmos right the dense create density in the cosmos is through, you know, repetitive, predictable. But for him, there's always going to be, even there, an aliveness. There's going to be a uh, unpredictability, even on that level of matter, right? And so for him, matter and consciousness are just different, convenient ways to, uh, to, to, to like, ends of one unified spectrum, right? So it has that sense that everything is made of one stuff, but that one stuff is isn't sort of an Aristotelian it's sort of like a it's a um it's change itself it's time itself it's consciousness itself right it's movement itself something like that so, so it's, it's a very buddhist sort of vision in certain ways Taoist maybe this is a, a a funny question right but why give a shit you know why do we you know why why try to define metaphysics why try to be curious about how we're kind of in this materialistically reductive worldview that we're trying to kind of bust free of a little bit why does it matter well because i think just like what you said we're trying to bust free from it and i think that i think that there's a, a certain implied metaphysics that we all do we all do metaphysics all the time we we all sort of create these worldviews for ourselves and why not make them, but they're usually tacit and they're usually like, you know, often based on just sort of like, almost like a lazy acceptance of what some authority figure has told you. Right. And so for a lot of people that, that worldview can be extremely debilitating, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Right. 
it created that sort of nihilistic sense that why you know, you know if everything's dead if everything's just sort of like you know uh, mathematically predictable determined material um, particles bouncing off each other you know and there's no real meaning there's no depth there's no purpose to anything that's a real that's a world of of anxiety and depression and fear and self-loathing and whatever it's like why not consciously look at the depths of some of these traditions and 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 begin to actively recognize the power of our words to shape our experience of reality and to consciously use those words to create a more enlivening inspiring vision of what really is so there's a, a participatory act i think to doing really metaphysics you know that's sort of like i'm by doing this empowering myself to create a different experience of reality for myself and, and perhaps for others too if they are um uplifted by that vision right yeah i, I there's a part of me that can imagine because i want to play devil's advocate a little bit here i imagine sure, sure, sure. i imagine that anybody who kind of grounds themselves in more of a materialistic reductive view they would say something like oh my gosh no there's there's such liberation and freedom and really understanding the kind of the details, you know, because I, I want to get into this, which is what you do such a good job in your book talking about, which is juxtaposing this kind of the, the, the detail-oriented, getting down into the very atomistic, yeah. you know, reductive versus the more, I think I like the metaphor you give, the metaphor of music and melody. Yeah, and the way those yeah. notes come together to create the song. And yeah. I, I just think that there's probably somebody, I think of Chalmers, who led a TED Talk off by saying, like, look, I'm a reductivist materialist. And he's also, uh, you know, aligns with panpsychism, which... That's fascinating, right? Yeah. And I've seen people do that, but it's, it is fascinating, right? So, you know, but, and I, and I totally understand. Can you can you talk a little bit about what even some of the words that I've just said? What materialism is, and related to that, why a materialist lens tends to gravitate toward determinism? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I don't know if I want to do like a hardcore definition of materialism, yeah. but but, it, but it's but certainly there it's that um, understanding that and I think materialism and determinism run hand in hand. There's a logical compatibility to them because. Um, you know, and this is, Bergson had to deal with this a lot because materialism was really strong, beginning to be really strong. It's sort of like, okay, if we have, take the assumption that everything is a collection of material particles, which meaning particles that have no consciousness within them, but are just simply driven by mathematical laws, right? There's that you could, if you had a, detailed enough mathematical knowledge of those energies and forces that are propelling those particles, you should be able to predict every single event that happens in the cosmos in the same way that you can, we can predict 
you know, when an eclipse is happening, right? Because we know we know the math, right? And 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 so you have that sort of almost like that vision of thinking that every thought and feeling and every experience that we have, there's no freedom in it because it's just a matter of lack of knowledge of those mathematical forces that are propelling us, that this utter determinism, right? And so that's why Bergson is like pushed back so hard because he is completely, everything is free and freedom. His job is having to, to, to you know, make sense of, you know, habits and things that do seem to have a regularity to them, right? And the structure, right? He's having, he has a different problem, right? But um, <laughs> anyway, so, I mean, that, I, I just want to say that for me, that vision is like, so I sometimes in my class call, it's like thinking of ourselves as squishy robots. Right. right. And that is an extremely unempowering, depressing, innately vision and if you don't recognize that you're just blind, I just have to say that, you know, I mean, it's like you bit, you need to do, you need to wake up, you know, because if you think that everything is just a bunch of predetermined, you know, physical things and that therefore where in the hell does consciousness come from? Because, from, because the hard problem here is that that, that all that material forces has no consciousness in it by definition. And so how do those things bump it up against each other with just mathematical regularity produce consciousness, which is innately, and we know that first-person viewpoint is not a third-person viewpoint. You know, it's well, not it, something right. outside of ourselves. It's something we know innately right here, right now. We know it, you know. Can't deny that. I mean, and you got these, you got these really hardcore you know, materialists that theorize about consciousness that go is what they call eliminative materialists that go so far as to even deny that 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 we actually have conscious experience. Mm -hmm. That we if we only knew better, we would say it's just, you know, and they would give some sort of fancy thing about what the brain's doing. Right. And it's like to not even be aware of the fact that they're aware, that's stunning to me. And these are really smart people. Right? So I mean it's like how, but they're so stupid. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys, you're stupid. And that, and on, on a basic, basic way, you know, it's like talk about, you know, bowing before letting your own limbs be cut off in that Procrustean bed of theory, you know? So you're so bound and determined that everything's dead and there's consciousness is an illusion that you're willing to like deny your own conscious experience, which, and how can anyone ever deny their own conscious experience without inherently right away contradicting themselves because they have to be conscious in order to be do any of this right so anyway, i just i'm sorry but this is old news for me no it's but good. i can't if you press if you press a button i'll still go there the, the, <laughs> the theme that i'm i'm learning and talking to everybody is that that's kind of the trajectory i mean the stuff that got you into this isn't the stuff you're still working on it makes a lot of sense yeah. and so the well the this stuff that I'm, that I'm, I mean, the Bergson and James completely informs what I work with in theater. Yeah. Because it can't not, because I'm, I've been shaped by them. So my own sort of experiences, even with the entheogens, is itself completely shaped, not completely, okay, I back off real hardcore. It's not determined, I'm not like, it, it's, but it's dramatically in a very interesting, amazing way shaped by 
my own sort of assumptive worlds, my um, why, my my intentions, my and my theology, my metaphysics. You know, my my whole sense of what the world is. You know, that's gonna either draw certain experiences to me or in the moment of experience shape those experiences or or that my internal sort of like lens through which I view the world maybe help, becomes like a prism that sort of helps to manifest experiences on, on a certain time, you know, something like so, that, right? So let me be the, let me occupy, a, a, you know, a, a debate-oriented perspective. And what I imagine and I, I can't, you know, talking in such typological language, if I'm going to be a materialist, I'm going to say something like altered states of consciousness is the darling of kind of the, the idealist, non-dual, um, dual aspect monism theories, yeah. you know, yeah. That, yeah. that that tends to be an entry point, And it's because yeah. of the illusory dimension that our subjective experience presents that that subjectivity that we that is unique to this psychedelic experience kind of leads us down a road that is disconnected from kind of quote reality and (laughs) so well i don't know disconnected from reality i mean because again that there's a certain sort of implication there, a, a, a very truncated, very narrow, in the box of what can be studied with, you know, through math and through physical instruments, right? As if that's the only thing that matters, so to speak, right? We even hear that word, you know, matters what matters, matters. right? <laughs> and, 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 and that it, what, it's what counts. Yeah. Because we value counting and math and quant- nothing's real unless it's, it, it can be you know, counted and weighed and measured. And, and so there's an inherent sort of, again, typically implicit, unexamined, you know, type of metaphysics there, right? It's like, oh, of course, that's what's real, right? It's just more like, no, that comes from a whole cultural long thing. You know, I'm a Kantian would, would laugh at that person. It's just the most, that person hasn't even got bothered going through philosophy 101, you know? And, and so it's sort of like, Give me a break, right? It's like, so anyway, I, I, I get really, because the way I think about with, like with hallucinations, the difference, like, you know, so most people that are materialists would say that when you have a, a psychedelic experience, it's a hallucination, right? Because why? Because there's a certain set of assumptions. The assumption is that there is only the brain and you, you produce a certain, give a certain, um, you know, let's say LSD, um, and, and that alters the, the molecules of the brain, the neurochemical uh, transmission process that is really what the brain is and makes you therefore experience something that is not real, right? So it's, it even perhaps is therapeutically, clinically, uh, you know, um, psycho, an indication of psychopathological. Some kind of psychosis, you know, sure. Yeah, right? And so there's all of that that's there, right? And it's based on what James would call the productive theory of consciousness, that the neurochemical activity of the brain produces our conscious experience. Now, that's fine, but James points out all that 
we really know is that there is some sort of relationship between conscious experience and, and the brain, but we don't know what that relationship is. And he says it's equally possible that what he calls the, the transmissive theory of consciousness, um, it's equally possible that consciousness in some form or another, and he was open to cosmic consciousness, pre-exist the brain itself and that the brain's job, every brain, every nervous system's job is to sort of open up to those, that pre-existing consciousness and receive it like, like a TV set receives the electromagnetic signals from a TV station. And those electromagnetic signals in the metaphor would be, you know, equivalent to the sort of the wave-like interpenetrating almost sort of like omnipresent nature of consciousness for Bergson, right? And so that, that uh, and for James really too, right? Um, and so that that consciousness, those levels of consciousness, because again, you can almost like TV, different TV channels tuning to different frequencies, right? Of those, that one more overarching electromagnetic spectrum, that the brain is really just sort of like a, a TV set and that we are just sort of, tuning into different frequencies of this pre-existing consciousness that and, and really only that which we are evolutionarily adapted to so the vast majority of it we're filtering out right and so this is why Aldous Huxley you know begins to explicitly draw upon Bergson's notion for his notion of what he calls the mind at large right and that's what happens in psychedelic experience is that the brain is filtering out actually typically in, in normal life the vast majority of what surrounds us and that we we therefore have these like blinders on in order to sort of quote unquote function efficiently from an evolutionary perspective but the reality may very well be that we put on these blinders and that psychedelics help to sort of like open up to cleanse the doors of perception right to see more clearly what actually was, is, was always there, is always there. But that we normally think that, that our just normal waking state perception is, is sort of like, that's what's real. Instead of, and that's why you're right, people that are interested in these you know, more non-dual or whatever realms of consciousness are very attracted to mysticism you know, because it, 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 it challenges. It's like James was saying, you, know, you have these mystical experiences and all of a sudden you know that, wow, there's this whole other worlds of experience that are equally as powerful and real as this one. And in fact, maybe even more so, almost more, more like, like platonic, you know, like, like this is like maybe even sort of a, a fairly dense level of experience, right? And I mean, that's what psychedelics begin to show you pretty quickly. Right? You could be tuned into these different channels and, you know, whether you travel to those other worlds or dimensions or whether those are sort of like, you're just opening into them or whatever. I don't know. It gets really sort of really mysterious and wondrous, but for some reason there's, there's definitely a connection between, you know, and those are different states of consciousness, right? You can't avoid that. And they're not, Anyway, so that's a that's a very truncated, you know, meandering. Thank well, God you're open to being meandering. I want to push into that a little bit because you you, I'd like to go down the trail of perception. Yeah. And how so? Because it seems to me that we're 
we're talking about the way that we kind of our sensory system or uh, comes to quote know where we are how we are where we are in space yep. what's going on in the environment and so yep. uh well and maybe maybe actually we need to back up further real quick because you keep talking about bergson and james and i'm yeah. wondering if we can kind of go into a little bit of your personal narrative to say how you got to those two people in particular yeah i mean um like I, th I think I was mentioning earlier on with a discussion with Corbin, you know, I was very much, I had always been interested in mysticism and, and, and I had taken a, uh, a course with this man. Um, and, and when I was at Temple University, getting my master's degree there, and I was on mysticism East and West. And I'm going, wow, this is great. This is exactly what I want to study. And uh, ends up that he was part of this philosophy of Prentice, tradition or the traditionalist tradition and um and i'm like going oh wow there's this whole thing that really on one level i completely agree with on another level i'm repulsed by right and so i ended up deciding like oh, i wanted to study this tradition you know do the whole thing but ended up that my committee said okay no no it's not you know, it's too ambitious and so they so i decided ultimately to work with with william james for my dissertation which became um, exploring unseen worlds um, my first book about William James and, and his understanding of mysticism, right? Because I began to, I had already in my graduate school been um, exposed to him to the, by the varieties of religious experience. I said, this is a really sort of cool, interesting guy. And then I knew there was these other things. And, and so I just began to um, read more about him and began to realize, wow, he has a really sophisticated understanding of consciousness I can make sense of these altered states of experience, right? And he's, there's a whole way in which he's really using these experiences to sort of explicitly doing it in the varieties to say, okay, these experiences, and it's not just mystical experiences, it's also experiences of genius and paranormal, you know, experiences of telepathy and clairvoyance and like this. These, all these experiences um, give us indications that there's so much more to who we are than who we normally think we are, right? And there's so much more to the cosmos than what we could have imagined, right? And so, yeah, it's sort of like, I, I loved sort of diving into William James's work because it began to sort of help me also make sense of all of these mystical experiences I had had in my own life, right? And to begin then to say, well, how do those relate to my study of these different mystics and different traditions, the similarities and the differences, right? And, and so his, his way of thinking about it really helped because it's like, so for instance, he has a thing, um, which I think is just really beautiful. Is it, it's a distinction, um, and we've, again, been playing about this, this duality and non-duality thing. It's, it's mm -hmm. both of their um, But the distinction between what he calls knowledge by acquaintance and knowledge about so that he's saying that every moment of lived experience, of concrete experience, is a fusion of these two and, and more, but at least these two. Um, you know, knowledge by acquaintance is that those levels of experience that are like, you know, sensory-like. We can't doubt them. You know, like I pick up this glass, I hear that. I'm not going to doubt the sound of that ice clinking, right? I'm not going to doubt the feeling of the coolness against my face, right? It's, it's immediate. It's direct. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to go through language. It's non-linguistic, right? I crunch on an apple. doesn't matter 
if I've never heard of an apple before, right? Never seen an apple before. Crunch. I get, I taste an apple, right? It's, it's that, that sort of knowledge by acquaintance, right? And he says that they are on a mystical and visionary level. There's analogs or that, that these, those things are also come with that sense of sort of directness, immediacy, immediacy of certainty, you know, it's, uh, and that's why mystics have that sense of like, they've experienced what is really true underneath the illusion, right? And um, so they got that, but then you've got knowledge about, which is for him, it's all what we normally think of as knowledge and more. So it's all the education, all the things we've been taught, all the books we've read, all the things we, but also that we've sort of absorbed through our skin almost by osmosis from our culture and certain attitudes towards who we are and what's valuable. And like, you know, I would say, you know, basically um, capitalism, for instance, is just like a huge matrix for that. It shapes our consciousness in ways we can't begin to comprehend, right? Mm. Um, and so we got all that, right? Which is all knowledge about. So it, it, it's, it, it's, it's linguistic, but it can be there. It's typically on the margins of our awareness, so it's shaping how we are experiencing life so that we might get the same sense state. I talk about this in class of, let's say, um, this, uh, let's say this young black girl walking down the street. And if you person, just to make it really extreme, has been raised in a racist family, they're going to see and experience that to have the knowledge by acquaintance certainty of, of see, sense state of seeing that young black woman that's going to be superimposed with a racist sort of knowledge about, right? What that, let's say, young man has internalized within him from his family, from his culture, from people, from narratives through social media or whatever, right? Mm. And so that his lived experience of seeing that young woman is this fusion of his past, and sort of the immediacy of the present in, in a certain way, right? Um, and so, and Bergson has a similar sort of thing with the, the interaction between um, pure perceptions and memory. Basically, it's a similar, it's an almost identical sort of thing, right? And so, from a mystical standpoint, what that matters is it's sort of like, okay, you know, there's this real live, cool interaction between, you know, th there's some theorists about mystical experience that basically say, we have the experience that our tradition has taught us to expect, right? So proud Wayne Proudfoot, for instance, and I talked about it in my book, and he has this whole theory that basically mystics, they, they, they're, they're trained, let's say a Buddhist monk has gone, you know, to, you know, listen to Buddhist, you know, chanting and read Buddhist scriptures and he's surrounded by fellow Buddhists. And, and so then he has some anomalous, uncategorizable experience in the body. And so all that Buddhist knowledge interprets that experience, that anomalous experience, as a flash of Satori, let's say. So there's nothing, there's, there's no there there. It's just simply a set of expectations and assumptions that have sort of created this illusion of a mystical experience, right? And for James, it's like, no, there is a real core to a mystical experience that is then of course shaped and interpreted and framed and whatever by the, the person's assumptive world, right? Into the, so that most likely most Muslims are not going to have a vision of green Tara. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're just not, right? 
Now, things get more complicated, though, in our sort of multicultural, interwoven, you know, pluralistic world where we're aware of all these things. Certainly I am, right? And it's sort of like, you know, but, but historically, right? And so that's actually one of the things that I think Stan Groff has really been cool pointing out the ways in which psychedelics, you can have these psychedelic experiences of people that have no historical understanding of, let's say, Egyptian in, embalming experiences, right? Who have these experiences of completely detailed, empirically verifiable experiences of what's it like to embalm somebody, right? You've got all these types of experiences of, you know, of people that have never heard of, you know, New Guinean pig gods having experience of being part of that pig god ceremony, right? With all the things that only someone like Joseph Campbell would understand. Right? And so that sense that that there is a there there-ness in these experiences. There's a there's something that true, but it's being shaped and molded, and not necessarily made untrue, but shaped and molded by our culture and our psychological background. Right? Well, I, I'm very persuaded by that. They, 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 they work together. Yeah. Totally seamlessly. And uh, and I, you know, that that particular both and way of understanding mm -hmm. mystical experience is also just, I mean, it comes from both of both Bergson and James's understanding of just how we what's happening all the time in our ordinary experience, right? And so what that what does that mean is that that again comes back to the importance of of, of our choosing what words we're going to use to describe to ourselves who we are, who we could be, what the world is, right? That's the why this stuff matters, right? As you were asking that earlier. Yeah. It's like, it matters because we can either sort of be these like passive like characters in a play, or we can be the authors of our own text of our lives, right? And this is completely bowing down to Jeff Kripal's understanding of authorship here, you know, that's, and I, I completely agree with it right and so it's like by paying attention conscious attention to like what's who are we what could we become and and, and then consciously from my perspective at least working to see that vision with you know experiences that can then give it sort of empirical weight and validity at least for you <laughs> right and so that's the, that's one of the things with psychedelics is it's sort of like you begin to like Again, and it's like it's a you don't have to wait upon the whims of the universe to have these really profound transformative experiences that can really open you up to the mystery and the magic of life, right? And uh, and the, the multidimensional nature of the cosmos, and can really challenge that materialistic truncated world that we so much we've been so much of us, so many of us just take for granted, right? So you said um, that earlier. Yeah. You, you referenced your own personal mystical experiences I'm, I'm, yeah i'm curious yeah. did you did you have these kinds of experiences and then get into religious studies or other way around no no definitely the experiences came first for sure i mean i had my first mystical opening when i was 14 years old you know just literally so out of the blue and, and it was a huge big thing i was like oh, was like, oh i'm awake <laughs> you know and like i mean it was much more than that but i actually even wrote about it in in, in james my james book because i said because that was really like just exactly what we were talking about right it was an example of hey listen i just this 14 year old kid i really didn't know nothing about nothing and i had this experience that it really took me even like a couple several years of exploring into like well what was that that I could begin to put some words around? Yeah, that, that felt like 
yeah, those words are coming close to what actually happened in there, but I didn't have the words for it. Either, you know, so, so forget about culture, my expectations creating this experience. I had no expectations for this at all, right? It just it came out of the blue. Will you and talk then, about it? Well, I mean, I was literally just going, um, it was in ninth grade, and I was, I had, for some reason, walking, I walked to school and back, and it was like, you know, about a 20-minute walk, and, you know, it was sort of upper middle-class neighborhood walking, this really cool laboratory school I went to called PK Young very sort of progressive, open-minded, experimental school, right? And um, so I was like, for some reason, and I don't know why, um, I was obsessed with death and what, what it would be like to die. And it's not like no, no, no one close to me had died. I hadn't read a book about death. There was no cause for it. All of a sudden, I just became really like, like what would it be like to feel dead? You know? And, and, and I began to wrestle with that paradox of that thing. Because I tried to imagine myself doing it, but then I said, "But I thought being dead meant I couldn't be conscious. That as soon as I was conscious, thinking about being non-conscious, I was conscious of it, you know." And I mean, so there's this whole thing of like, wait, no. And so I was sort of wrestling with this in the back of my mind on both walks, and especially on the walk coming back. But it was all pretty much all day, just sort of on and off. And uh, and so walking back from school, just about a block from my house, all of a sudden it's like I'm just like lifted out of my smallness and i really felt like i would just i woke up and it's like all of a sudden i was like this i don't know sort of boundless expansiveness and it had something to do with consciousness and i knew it had to do with consciousness and it was like and it was just this just this vista of who of just like major major sort of like i mean it was ecstatic right and it didn't last long, probably like only like a minute or so, but I came out of it. I was like, okay, the world is, is fundamentally shifted for me, right? And I knew, and I didn't want to tell my parents about it. And it was just too strong. And so I just started like looking for, you know, echoes or guide points into what was that all about, right? Like reading about Siddhartha. And so Herman Hess was a big one for me and lots of sci-fi, you know, like... Uh, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land and Paralandra with C.S. Lewis. And, and so I find these little echoes, right? And, and then I began to very much, you know, use marijuana because this is like ninth grade. Right? So again, that was part of it, just sort of like as a spiritual path almost, you know, these all, again, these altered states of consciousness that are like, whoa, what is this saying? There is this other thing, you know? It's about, there's something about shifting consciousness and the recognition that you can, that there are these other levels of experience that you can open into, right? And and so then all that sort of led to um, me trying LSD for the first time when I was like 18, maybe 17. And I only did it twice, but it was like amazing, right? It was both times were just stunningly amazing. And um, and it was interesting. I mean, I, I, have, I have this whole memoir I'm writing about that because it's just it was so important to me. And uh, I mean, truly was. And but then, interestingly, right after that, that's when I, you know, um, started really. Um, not long after that, really began to get involved with you know meditation and studying because I was always, you know, like I there's a whole thing about finding be here now in Europe, and it became so like my Bible with Ram Dass and everything. And so to be able to sort of just 
begin to explore this Eastern meditation, there was a clear link to the psychedelics with it, with Ram Dass, right? We'll be here now. And so I could feel that affinity, right? And so I ended up pretty soon, um, it's just one little, this is part of my, part of, you know, we all have these little, our mythology, right? So this is part of my, like, one of those mythic moments where I've been reading Be Here Now, and I, I dropped out of college just, and I was living this, like, hippie ghetto, right? And, we, you know, I was meditating and all that and smoking a ton of pot every day. And um, then, and so I, I'm, I'm sitting here meditating, and, I, and I've got my eyes closed, and, and I can really see really clearly and felt it. It was like, it was like a visionary. It wasn't just a knowing. It was like, it was like a feeling, visionary experience of that, Above me and around me was this mountain of shit. And all mine. And I had to be able to sort of go through all that to get to the light, you know? And I'm like, and I knew like, how can I possibly, my little feeble efforts possibly ever do that? And, you know, Ram Dass had sort of said that, you know, when you need the guru, the guru will appear. I said, I need a guru. I need a help. I need some assistance. I need to, to, you know, I got to get out of this. And then I swear to God, literally the next day I'm walking around the University of Florida campus in Gainesville, and all of a sudden there's these posters all over the place, be with Baba, you know? And, you know, God dwells within you as you. And it was like, ends up being posters for the man who has became my guru for like you know, seven, half, eight years. And where I, you know, I followed him to India for lived with him for like two years and literally traveled around the world with him and, all, you know, was trained to be a monk with him and had just profound mystical experiences. I mean, my first encounter with him was made that first mystical experience look like nothing. It was just like, I mean, that's a whole other story, <laughs> you know? And so he began to have mystical experiences pretty regularly after that. And so, you know, just my sort of life world. Right. And so I want to make sense of it. Well, at what point does, because here you are traveling the world, you know, becoming a monk. When does the academic piece come in? Um, well, so I was with Muktananda for about eight years, like I said. And then, almost, you know, fairly soon after he died, I ended up going back to school. I had already been planning this just even before he died. Because I was at that point running um a meditation center out in, in um, Santa Monica, California. It was a huge, big, you know, we had like 100 people, residential center and stuff like this. And um, I said, no, no, no. You know, I mean, I, I had already gotten some, I began to have some questions about sort of the organization about him and all that. And so I, really powerful things were going on with me. And so I, I ended up leaving the ashram and, um, you know, getting a girlfriend. I hadn't had, a, I mean, because I had been celibate for like eight years, you know. Immediately, so immediately getting a girlfriend, you know, getting an apartment, getting a car, going back to school. But it was this really cool alternative school where I got credit for life experience with Antioch had a campus there, branch campus there. And, and they would pay, if they, they had just like a handful of teachers. And if they had a, if they, if they didn't have a class, they would just pay whoever wanted you to teach whatever course you wanted to design. Right. So I ended up doing all this like, I did voice lessons with a woman who was a vocal coach for Rod Stewart. You know, I took keyboard lessons from Seals and Cross keyboardists, you know, and all that sort of shit, right? And so I got my BA in a year and a half. Um, it was really, and it was in religious studies because that's all the stuff I'd been interested in, right? 
And I like I would literally like they would go I'd go to a Zen Roshi in LA, in LA and say, Hey, Antioch will pay you to read this 20-page paper I'm gonna write on Zen Buddhism and to show you the bibliography of what I've studied and then to you know have you write an assessment of this. It's sort of like in lieu of a three unit you know credit course on, on Zen Buddhism, right? And and so it's sort of like that's how I got my my BA, right? And so it's like Somehow, somehow, with that weird, weird BA, I got into Temple University with, for my MA, right? And my brother, who went to Yale and all this, he could never imagine how I got anywhere. And he was always astonished that I got hired, got not hired, but, you know, <laughs> taken in by these grad schools, right? And then to get into University of Chicago, which is like the creme de la creme, the highest yeah. you can imagine in the field, right? And, you know, and to get like... Uh, you know, best dissertation of the year sort of awards, all this. He couldn't believe it, right? Because it's, but I'm like, oh, well, I mean, you know, it's whatever. I, I, I've always had sort of that un, untraditional, you know, way of doing things. So. <laughs> Thank God. No. <laughs> 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 right? I mean, because I could tell you this whole other thing, the whole time when I was, uh, you know, um, the first six years, uh, when I was at, at hired at Southern Methodist University, my first hire right out of grad school, you know, in 1994, um, where I still am. Um, my first six when I was going for tenure, I was spending probably five out of six weekends up in New York City or and then later in Meadville, PA, where my wife ended up living, um, to do these like long weekends. Like I'd fly out Friday during the day and get there Friday afternoon up in New York City, let's say in the beginning, and stay, do these long, intensive weekends on spiritual healing, energy healing, mm. you know, with this, and, and then fly back Monday. So I was basically only in Dallas from like Tuesday through Thursday, and I had Tuesday, Thursday classes. And so I was having to get all my tenure stuff together and do all this while having this whole, like, literally like a shadow life. I didn't tell anybody, none of my colleagues knew about this, right? Because... I had been warned that if I let anyone know, I would be fired, you know? I certainly wouldn't get tenure, you know? And so there's this whole other deeply experiential side of me learning to sort of like awaken to energy and to be able to sense it and be able to work with it effectively in groups and, you know, blah, blah, blah. This whole sort of clearing of lots of old defense structures and deeply, deeply therapeutic group work and all this sort of going on for like, We'd start like it, you know, like that evening from like a Friday evening, we'd do from like maybe like six until 10, and then Saturday from like maybe like 10 until one or two in the morning, and then basically all day Sunday, you know, doing this really charged, like 60 people in the room, energy, like group processing and stuff like this, right? It was like wild. I mean, the guy, incredibly talented working with, with energy, with, with, with sen intuitive sensitivities to what's going on in the room and all, you know, working to undercover people's really deep um, defense structures, but hold it with a lot of light and compassion and doing these different exercises on how to sort of, you know, very much involving the body and the breath and movement, right, which became my sort of specialty where I began to teach there, you know, more and more. And so I'm doing all this and I'm a full-time academic is my point, you know, and that's just sort of how I've lived my life. 
you know, having this whole other wildly powerful, strong, you know, experiential, energetic world in conjunction with my academic work, writing, teaching. Well, that certainly makes sense when I was reading your book about uh, Bergson and how movement is such a, you know, change being the constant and movement yeah. being kind of that. Um, and I, I wonder if, because you, you went wanting to do work on Corbin and then, you know, wisely went the James route. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about, you know, questions like, well, why James, why is he significant? And how did it shift and influence your worldview by doing that, that work? Well, yeah, I mean, just sort of like what I was talking about with, you know, how to understand sort of that fusion of culture and something transcultural, transpersonal in, in mystical experiences helped me to sort of make, you know, really helped me to sort of like find a, a matrix that can make sense of my own experiences, right? And, um, and be able to talk about how ways in which I could begin to access different strands of mystical traditions with integrity and authenticity, knowing that sort of, um, that on one level, I do think that they're tapped into something real, but on another level, they're all these really beautiful to me cultural expressions of how to interact with that which has been open to them right and um so that was very helpful for me and then you know when i got when when after i finished writing that i had to decide for my second book with bergson it's sort of like at first i was really interested in like i want to just write about intuition and the sources of how does intuition where you know how can we ground intuition because james starts talking about intuition right and these sort of non conscious ways of knowing, you know, and how to sort of understand those metaphysically even, right? And so I began to just prowl around and say, well, who really wrote the best about intuition? Who are the big people? And and they kept coming back to Bergson, right? And then to re and Bergson was just completely important for James's willingness to open up to sort of a, a type of what he calls pluralistic panpsychism, right? You know, that uh to really think of the cosmos as, as this pluralistic, open-ended thrust of a, of a sort of a deeper unity. But he was just, James was always very nervous about, you know, he didn't want to become a monist, you know, because he, he had to fight, some of his intellectual sparring partners were monists, you know, because he wanted everything to be sort of messy and ragged and open-ended. And, and I've always, he really helped me sort of appreciate that that sense of that it's that how the universe sort of exceeds our theoretical constructs always, right? And that um, we need to ground ourselves in experience. This is James's notion of radical empiricism, right? So, so what, when I began to see how much James respected Bergson and really like how he helped him to sort of say, no, no, we need to really root ourselves in that rather than logic, rather than Aristotelian logic. Root ourselves in what we directly know and experience right and then that's a that's a source you know that's something to ground philosophy in rather than just pure apodictic theoretical logical constructs right and so it was like so it was so cool then to go to Bergson and to discover oh my god 
here's this guy who's totally congruent with James. And they were like talking back and forth to each other about the nature of consciousness. And so when you start looking at it, it's like it becomes to be a little like, who thought of this first, you know, because they were so closely in conversation and interacting and their, their vision becomes so similar in so many ways. And yet there's such a different um, flavor to Berg's song, you know, with, you know, it was just like, but they both had the interest in mystics, right? You know, and the link between their metaphysical vision and mysticism was like really, with Bergson's a little closer, and with Bergson, I got into really, 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 God almighty, I mean, he just, I had to think so deeply, sweating blood and tears to really get, especially Matter of Memory, his second book, to really get that. And it's like, oh, you know, and it's like, such deep respect for him because I think it's like he sort of solved the mind-body problem at least I mean to me it's very convincing you know and it's sort of amazing people don't like just yeah there's movement towards it with panpsychism discussion of panpsychism but it's like God give a man some some due you know give his give him give him his due you know? there's a you referenced this earlier but one of my favorite quotes and you've I've, I've read it before and you you put it out in the forefront Friedrich Worms, the it is not the world which is um, the content a content of consciousness, but consciousness which is a property of the world. Yeah, and that yeah. that to me sounds like I mean back to this kind of James theory about um, the productive model versus transmission. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's we don't. We don't talk about a lot of that these days. I mean, you hear a kind no. of nod to this in more sp spiritualist kind of communities, but certainly not in a more um, scientific world. But my understanding is they're, they're not mutually exclusive. We we can you know we can view these things and watch them, and you know if if anything, it opens up a broader. Uh, arena for research and inquiry when we well, begin I think to... that the thing with a productive model though that what I have seen is that so I don't think that the productive model and the transmissive model are um, mutually exclusive to the extent that I mean they are mutually exclusive to the extent that one thinks that there is no consciousness and or that the or the creation of consciousness the hard problem is, is utterly mysterious and, and doesn't philosophically make sense Whereas the transmissive model really is like, you know, you got all sorts, you, 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 what you can do with the transmissive model is say, we are deeply interested in the minutia of the easy problems. We're deep, this is fascinating. We, we want to know more about the brain. You can completely talk about the brain and, 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 and know is whatever. So it's not anti-scientific. It's a different, it's anti-scientism, hmm. right? So scientism is really like this, unexamined, basically physicalist, materialist metaphysics that's sort of smuggled into science and giving the imprintur of scientific validity, whereas really it's just a set of philosophical assumptions that really aren't that challenged and, and aren't even really examined consciously much. It's just sort of assumed, again, sort of lazily assumed in a certain way, I would say. For most, for most scientists, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. And so... I mean, it's the same sort of way, though, interestingly, I mean, I was talking, because for Bergson, I had to really, um, really learn something about quantum mechanics. And, yeah. um, you know, because he, he literally, he had 
you know, people that became very famous quantum physicists listening to his lectures, you know, and, and I had to really point out the way in which his metaphysics pre some of the, some, and again, not like the mathematics of it, but just the vision of it, you know, was a precursor for what quantum physics is telling us. And so that some of the striking overlaps and parallels are just like sort of mind boggling. So I had to get to know at least to a little bit. Right. And so we begin to sort of see that, you know, really the metaphysics that most scientists have is like sort of a, new, a Newtonian metaphysics in a sense, right? They haven't, so even scientists haven't quite graduated to what the fuck is going on with quantum mechanics and what is that telling us about the nature of reality, right? And it's a not a Newtonian world, right? But our common sense is sort of Newtonian. You know, there are bumpy things that we bump up against, right? And so it's, uh, but I was talking to this one quantum physicist because I had to run past him my, my, uh, my take. I sort of really like compressed sense of sort of the major sort of thrust of the development of that, that quantum theory. And uh, I, I ran it past him. He's the chair of our um, you know, physics department at SMU. And he said, it, we went out to lunch. He said, Bill, you know, you got it totally, I can't, I can't say a thing. You, you got it completely right. If anything, it's weirder than the way you portray it, you know? <laughs> you know, so what he said, it, like this whole thing about the habits of, the habits of, of matter and the, and the fusion of consciousness and matter, right? All that's there in quantum mechanics. And so he said, really, there is from a quantum mechanics standpoint, even the math, that would, would say it, would, it is within the realm of completely possibility that I could stick my hand through this wall right now. You know, we just think of this wall as a, subject, a solid object. It's not, right? It's not even particulate from you get down to the quantum level. It's sort of this pulsating, you know, thing where particles become waves, become particles, and they be almost, sometimes seem to almost be only become particles when you're, they're being looked at, i.e., and consciousness is interacting with it and all this sort of stuff, right? All this wild stuff. And he said, yeah, I could literally walk through the wall from a quantum mechanic. It's not likely to happen because the habits of it are so, again, sort of the more habitual notion of not the laws of consciousness, but the statistical probabilities of, which is really like habits almost of, of, of matter. <laughs> and the bottom line though, it just, to me, it was just really amazing. Here's this man who just this brilliant genius who's basically just thinking these things through and getting to the depth of the fabric of reality that quantum physics later empirically verifies, right? He was a man who was willing to take on Einstein about the nature of time, mm. wrote a whole book, you know? I mean, he was a brilliant mathematician, right? And I think Bergson, or Bergson, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, had, he had a whole book called you know, and it's just talking about his vision of time versus sort of a more mathematical, almost sort of new, you know, even Einsteinian view of time, you know, and, and you know, because he for his whole, and this is what where he really, I, I think I'm persuaded. I don't know, you know, he later sort of backed down a little bit with his math, but because um, it's not really a mathematical thing for him, it's a philosophical thing. It's like for him, time is, is always, I, I love his vision of time because it's informed my teaching about primal people's understanding of time and people that don't, that, you know, most of our time in human history 
we didn't have clocks, right? Yeah. So what's our experience of time? Clocks are what make us think that, that time has a, you know, there's a second, there's an hour, there's a minute, there's a regularity, it's, and it's cut into little bits, right? And, and so we have this clock time that we've imposed, that, that conscious, that our culture sort of impregnated our consciousness with. And so we experience the world like almost as if there's an underlying tick, tick, tick of a stopwatch, right? Because we've internalized clock time so deeply. And, but imagine, you have to sort of do it almost a thought experiment, what it would have been like to the experience of time with people that never had clocks, right? And it's like, for them, it's like, it's by the the moon and the stars and the sun and the rhythms of of biology fluxing and coming and going, right? It's a pulsating, secular sort of vision of time, right? It's not a linear view of time at all. And there's this sense, it's also deeply, deeply, and this comes back to the Bergson's, I mean, to James's notion, it's deeply, deeply impregnated with these, uh, these taken for granted mythical and maybe even whatever more developed understandings of the whole world being alive and there's these spirits and you need to contact them and and that 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 assumption i would say quite likely that's that knowledge about draws and invokes those experiences certainly makes them more pop possible right where you can be you know like all of a sudden you've got a worldview that's sort of open to these things right whereas for us we've got a worldview that says none of that stuff matters it's all unreal it's not valuable. Where's the monetary value of it? You know, I mean, what, you know, what's the technological implications and all that sort of stuff, right? And like, so it's a different. And, and but from, I think it's very true. It's like our experience of time is, it's not clock time. Really, if we look at it, sometimes time just goes like that, and sometimes time just like feels like it's going so damn slow. You're so bored, and you're so oh, right. So we have this. It's pulsational. It's you know, it's 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 not measurable in that sense either, right? I, anyway, so it was a very fun. I got this whole other sense of time that was so fruitful for me, and it really like again changed my experience because I began to notice different levels of temporality that I had never perceived before, right? And anyway, <laughs> oh, that's great. That's yeah, that's really I, interesting. I, that's um, uh, well, and the the thought there is that it's. Uh, we're still in that space of subjectivity and objectivity and that there's this agreed upon method to quantitatively analyze versus the kind of more intuitive feeling. So let's, let's jump into intuition there. Um, You were talking earlier about intuition. I knew you were excited about that. I'm I'm curious if you could riff on Mm -hmm. that for a little bit, you know, what, if you just start, what what is intuition? Yeah, no, where does it come from? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's the thing. That's why I was really like curious. Where does this stuff come from, right? And so with Bergson, especially in creative evolution, and it's one of the shames of the book, and I'll just tell you, frankly, what happened was that I just started, I start from the beginning of Bergson, right? And I really wanted to chew on time and free will and then t- chew on that or memory. By the time I finished chewing on those things, I had like over 600 pages of manuscript, right? <laughs> and I'm going, wait now, I want to say something about creative evolution, about the two sources. So, but I didn't really get to spend anywhere close to the amount of time I would have wanted to. On So the, so the book does not talk 
anywhere near as much as I would have loved for it to have talked about intuition, ironically, right? Because all the other stuff seems so foundational and so important yeah. to sort of, because he, he works like that. He, his, his, his work is like a, and I don't think he, it's a reflection of his philosophy, right? There's like this sort of like virtual, like, like seed thing that sprouts into time and free will. And then it turns into matter and memory, but there's not like a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's just sort of an organic outgrowth of time and free will, right? But it goes in a very different direction, has a different sort of vision that's a little more encompassing, and it's sort of sort of like it'd be like it's like a, literally like the oak tree little sprout coming out, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, and then it like flowers again into creative evolution in this unanticipated, very different way, but that's not, but that's still continuous with the temporal flux of his of his work. And that goes into, you know, um, the two sources, right? Which is like, it's like amazing, but, but sort of problematic work too. I mean, I can get a whole thing about this, about these, you know, religions, how religions, for instance, have two sources. One is, you know, basically what society is imprinted and you're almost like an ant being imprinted, by, it's almost like instinctual, right? And of what, how you should behave, like this is your, this is the moral codes and all this, right? And then there's the this living source of religion, which to him again is the Lam Vital and that sort of the divine connection with the, the mystics of the divine. And there, these mystics are showing us a vision of who we could and should become, which is people that are linked into this cosmic, ever new source of inspiration. And that's really the source of intuition, really, bottom line, right? And but he he does. Uh, a very subtle analysis because he talked about an intuition lots of different ways, almost like a prism, right? So there's a very subtle analysis of the difference between instinct and intellect, right? He says like intellect, like instinct, and he really gave me a really interesting understanding of instinct. Um, that I, I never really thought about instinct more. It's really cool because you start looking at these examples. So for instance, he he used the example of okay, there's this one particular species of wasp, and it, it has to plant its eggs in, a, in this caterpillar. Mm. And it's just driven by instinct to do this, right? But it, if it plants the eggs in a wrong way in the caterpillar, it'll kill the caterpillar. And what the caterpillar needs to be is paralyzed, not dead, so that its young can eat the caterpillar while it's still fresh and alive as they're growing. So the caterpillar becomes like a source of food for it. And so this wasp, it's never gone to wasp school to learn this. It's never been shown by its mommy wasp how to do this. Knows exactly where to sting that caterpillar so that it becomes paralyzed and it doesn't die. And it's literally like a matter of like, you know, like, you know, like, I don't know what the very, very close difference. It's very, it's not like just like random. It has to go just there, right? Where does that come from? Where does that knowledge come from to do that, right? And so for him, it's like instinct is like is definitely that link to that cosmic. It's like he he really in, in, in matter of memory really basically says we're part of an interconnected whole. We are connected to the whole. We know, we, and that's a lot of what our brain is doing is filtering out most of that connection, right? And that instinct is like that is that animal or that being that bug in this case having a very, very narrow little aperture into that cosmic knowledge, you know, so it's only, and it's, and it's a pretty rigid one because it can only do that thing. It doesn't really have a choice almost. It's sort of driven to do it, right? Whereas intellect, 
can gather all this information, but it, it's very linguistic. And so it chops things up into bits and, and puts words onto it. And so it, 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 the intellect has innately a very difficult time understanding life and unpredictability and change and growth and movement and interconnection and paradox and all this sort of stuff. It wants to, you know, it's like it's what likes math, right? It's like it's got an answer and all, you can see it all sort of comes out, right? And, um, and it's predictable. And so all this sort of like, so that intellect inherently doesn't have much understanding of life, of what life is, you know, because Elamital is life force. The, the, so it's, 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 a, it's conscious, but it's also the source of life itself, the source of growth. And so it's like with Bergson, you get this real sense of like, which I, I'm, again, in creative evolution, which I just like totally understand, like, What's it? There's a huge difference between a car and a human being, human body. So even from what's it? What's it make for something a living organism? Right, a car cannot create itself. Right, and a human being, you know, I mean, an egg and a sperm coming together. It's it's like there's no parts coming into it from outside that had been already previously. It's like it, it comes with sort of an internal knowledge of how to create itself that's inherent to it, and that that growth in life is something the intellect has a lot of trouble with. So you get biology that basically, ironically, deeply ironically, seems to ignore what life is and makes us all into basically because that's the Newtonian model. It's all just dead atoms that are bumping up against each other in the bottom, right? And so. Intellect doesn't quite get life and consciousness and interconnectedness. So what intuition does in some ways is take the best of both of those. So intuition is like you're opening up to this deep, deep levels of interconnectedness to you with life and these deep, deeper sources of, 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 of consciousness. And yet it's, it's not rigid and fixed. See, the, the nice thing about the intellect is it, can, it uses tools really well. And so those tools can be adaptable to different situations, right? And so it's like he says with intuition, it combines the, the being in touch with the cosmos with the sort of the adaptability of the intellect and the openness of the intellect, right? Um, and so that's at least part of what intuition is for him. There's a lot more to it than that, but, you know. It's almost like there's very close resonance with the romantic view. You know, I think with both him and Bergson are sort of linked to that sort of romantic sense that where does genius come from, right? Yeah. It comes from that sort of abysmal depths of the self, you know, these subconscious levels of the self that, that percolate up, you know? So they're self, but they're not ego self. They're not who we normally identify with, right? And uh, so, <laughs> so it seems like what that's saying is that there is a particular evolutionary and biological framework that predisposes that particular species or individual to kind of tune into, to use the antenna metaphor, yeah, to yeah, tune into yeah. a particular way of being. And that that the the biology and that framework mixed with this contact with cosmic yeah. consciousness yeah. creates the experience 
and also creates the limitations of the experience yeah. of that particular of, organism. Of instinct. of instinct in that case, yeah. right? And so he does a whole thing with bees and ants in terms of, you know, in the two sources also, that because he's really clued into this whole instinctual hive-like thing. And so it begins to be this really critique of this sort of like tribalism that we're experiencing so much of the us versus them and all that sort of stuff. It's really, it's really applicable a lot, you know, and the sort of like, and the, and the sources, the need for fundamentalism and, you know, that, that all that sort of stuff versus sort of the open ended experiential wonder of a mystic, you know, and, and that sense of being guided from within, but, but at the same time, he's aware that these mystical inspirations need uh, he, he likens to the volcanic magna, you know, that needs to sort of cool down and create the structures of the of the more institutional religion in order to have some longevity, you know, that um, have some sort of firmness to it, right? So there's a, it's not like it's completely bad necessarily. The institutional structures begins to people begin to mistake the the cool, you know, the mag the the the, the base of the lava stones for the flowing magna of the real thing you know <laughs> the lava stones are all stuck and cool and they're hard and the magna is flowing and it's hot and it's bright right and so it's the same stuff but it's very different at the same same time too right and so i think that's that's his he, that's his sort of again this manyness and wonder twoness and oneness that he had also sort of it's um, well, could you speak a little bit about your experiences in your studies of entheogens and what you're learning by kind of investigating the communities that tend to connect most with those kinds of practices and substances? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, I've been, part, you know, studying the Santo Daime tradition, the, this new religious movement sprang out of Brazil and the Amazon region, rainforest region of Brazil and say of Acre in the 1930s. Um, this man named Mestre Irineu, um, this almost seven foot tall, non-educated black man who was became aware of the ayahuasca used by the indigenous people in the area because he's like a border guard way out in the hinterlands of this, you know, remote rainforest and and he began to be aware of that ayahuasca use. And, you know, at some point, he, uh, according, you know, so the mythology, I mean, his, his own stories, his own testimony, that, you know, at some point he was doing like this uh, eight-day retreat out in the forest, you know, just drinking ayahuasca every day and by himself with a whole series of sort of ritual injunctions and had this really powerful experience of this, female divine figure coming from the moon and basically transmitting to him the, what we would call in the, in the sunshine nutrition, the doctrine, which is has also a weird uh, overtones in, 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 you know, because we don't indoctrinate and all this stuff. It's like, but in Portuguese, you know, doctrina and indoctrinar are um, it's basically just teachings. So like, it's like the, like the, like the esoteric matrix, the energetic matrix of this tradition that later became the Santodani, right? And so here's this tradition that sort of emerged as mostly almost all black, uneducated black uh, men and women in this, you know, frontier land sort of thing. And they begin to have these just beautiful, amazing ongoing experiences. And 
a lot of it's being you know transmitted through hymns these received hymns these sort of inspired hymns that are common visions and dreams and um so you have this particular this developmental trajectory of this tradition that you know where people are you know their their lives are oriented around regular consumption of uh, this dream they call daiming they re-anointed the ayahuasca to call it daiming and daiming in portuguese means like it's like means give me it's like give me light give me strength give me hope give me faith right so it's using those invocations right so what's really fascinating to me about studying some of the design is like it's a little different than studying like the you know like poland's book about you know the therapeutic uses of like you know let's say psilocybin and things which is this wonderful psychedelic renaissance of study empirical study of psychedelics and, right. and especially for its therapeutic implications but this is a little different you know this is a community this is people doing it in an ongoing way and so in some ways it's sort of like like a democracy of mysticism right because so many of these people are having the levels of experience that are equally profound if not more than most of the classic mystics right in an ongoing way you know and, cre- and living in a community together and, uh, and and not just individual hermits up in a cave or there is a whole thing and and so like and then to see what happens when this religion in the forest sort of comes out and goes to Europe and North America and Australia and all that sort of into more urban areas and some of the changes that are happening, right? And and because this particular tradition, very open, it's like the eclectic uh, center. It's like it's the, especially with the, the particular line that came after the death of Mr. Irineo, started by Padrino Sebastial, this sort of the head of the line that, that I've been part of. Um, so like, okay, you know, we, we, we are open to bringing together in a real organic way different streams of spirituality. So like they incorporated Umbanda, which is this mediumistic tradition. It's very, it's like, they're like, you know, maybe 40, 50 Umbandistas in, in Brazil, right? And so this sort of this fusion of Umbanda and Daimi and then bringing in the Eastern traditions, right? And yoga and meditation and et cetera, et cetera. All these esoteric streams, almost like, a, you know, from theosophy and all this sort of stuff and um, putting it all together, right? And then all, this whole West African Orisha sort of thing that's going down, reverence for the different forces of nature. So you have this real open-ended, you know, amazing sort of religion that's sort of flowering and the and sort of the struggles and tension which you know it's it's a lived one between being faithful to tradition and structure and how you've inherited something and then here's this substance that is just like the very fountainhead of revelation and inspiration right and so to how to sort of like bring that together right so you got these different strands within the community of People that are much more open to change and newness, new ritual forms, and other people that are no, 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 we got to keep. It's almost like Mahayana Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism. It's sort of it's sort of similar in that way, right? And I tend to be more a Mahayana Buddhist. I'm a Tantrika, you know. <laughs> so I mean, so anyway. Well, it's. But. I was really enjoyed reading your paper because it it's not. It, that's the thing that stuck out to me. It wasn't. This isn't somebody trying to trip out. I mean, this is a 
you know, and it's not somebody going to participate in a religious ceremony in the jungle. It's, it's, it is yeah. a community of people that are coming together that are having these pretty yeah. profound experiences together. Yeah. And an ongoing way. There's, that's the thing. It's like, and I, I'm right when I'm writing my book now, it's sort of like, cause I'm writing a book about, you know, about psychedelic spirituality, but focusing on the Santo nutrition because that's tradition I know, right. You know, it's, it's, as a religious studies scholar, it's just fascinating, right. To see, you know, what happens, you know, when people are so plugged in? Because, you know, there's often that sense that you get the founder was plugged in and maybe some of his charismatic followers were plugged in, and then you sort of lose that, right? Mm-hmm. Way, but, but with the founder with of so like the daimi itself is that plug in, you know? And, and there's a lot of work to be done. So it's not, it's like, the thing with, with you also see is like it's not just about tripping out. It really is. It, it's almost nothing about that. It's about clearing yourself out so that you can be more and more translucent channels of this light and this love and this divine power that wants to work in and through everyone, right? And again, it's part of that evolutionary drive to awaken people, right? So in the Santo Daimi, it's like it's all about there are different levels of different people that are interested, but the, probably the stream that I'm most interested in is this stream that really talks about the I am, that sort of cosmic divine self that's within each one of us that, that we would call in the daimi the Christ consciousness, right? But it's the juramidon, it's the, it's the, that consciousness that is, that is incarnate in that, which we, a genuine sacrament of the daimi. So that that physical substance embodies in this really mysterious way this cosmic consciousness you know and it's like really wild right that sort of but that's how we theologically look at the diamond right that it's not it's certainly not a drug it's a sacrament and a very very awe-inspiring sacrament then you got to work your butt off with it because it's going to stretch you and really like show you anything that's keeping you from those higher, deeper, more truer levels, more freer levels of who you are, we are, right? Um, so it's, well, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it, it feels like there's um, there's a lot more of a conversation there. Oh yeah, for sure. No, 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 for sure. I love <laughs> no, we, we have just the, the frost <laughs> and the tip of the ice, right? So uh, I want to be <laughs> sensitive to your time. You've been extremely generous with it, and yeah, no, no problem. I wonder if there's, aside from that, and if if you would, I'd love to chat with you again when your book comes out about yeah, that for sure, book. For sure. Is there, sure, any, you know, is there anything thing. else, kind of a thread that's hanging out that we haven't really tended to? No, I don't think so. I mean, because it's just sort of a meandering conversation, like you're saying, and I just, my, you know, it's sort of like you just press a button and you can yeah. imagine when I'm like a teacher, you know, it's like, <laughs> Yeah, I feel the same way as a teacher. Yeah. Well, let's. It's a delight. It's been a total delight. I wanted to let you know. You know, it's so rare to have people ask such intelligent, probing questions, and to and yet be such a beautiful listener. And my my apologies if at times um, I haven't included you as much in the conversation as I maybe could have. You know, I just get so carried away and swept up by some of these themes. I just they, they just. I live them, you know. So. <laughs> I'm glad you did. I don't. Yeah. I don't need to be in these. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, that's the point, man. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm just. 
I'm honored by your uh, your presence and certainly grateful for your work. And I'll yeah, continue important. reading if you continue right, writing. Yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. All right. Give up hope of the earth.